Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. If you ask doctors to name a health issue that has bedeviled Americans for years, one of the first answers you're going to get is obesity. But the science of how people gain weight, how to lose weight, and just in general, what foods make you a healthier person often feels to the public like it keeps changing. The science is changing, and that's normal. All sciences change. Cardiology has changed dramatically. Physics changes. Genetics uh, changes. Dariush Mozafarian is the dean of the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy at Tufts University and one of the country's leading experts on nutrition. Uh, but what's different about nutrition is that it's so public. It's so immediately relevant to people that when the science changes in physics or when the science changes in cardiology, only a few people notice. But when the science norm- normally and naturally changes in nutrition, everybody gets upset. So if you have a little whiplash over whether you should be eating fat or carbs, butter or olive oil, bread or Skittles, we're going to spend some time today looking at what the best and most recent studies show. And yes, we will get to that bread versus Skittles question. But Mozafarian, who's also a cardiologist, says part of the reason that a lot of the best work on obesity has been done recently and why we didn't understand weight and calories all that well a few decades ago is that, frankly, the study of nutrition is pretty new. This is you know, one of the youngest and most rapidly advancing sciences that we have. So you know, I would date modern nutrition science uh, to be less than 100 years old. And the first few decades of nutrition science were mostly about identifying vitamins and figuring out the roles they played in afflictions like rickets and scurvy and night blindness. And it really wasn't until the late 70s and 80s that nutrition uh, science started to really seriously turn its focus on chronic diseases like obesity and heart disease and cancers. And so that's, you know, even just a few decades old. Since we did start focusing on obesity, there have been missteps and incomplete findings. But Mozafarian says that recently the accumulation of data has convinced him of three things. Fat is really good for us. Most fats are actually really good for us. Fat's not uh, negative in general. Uh, Secondly, that we should be thinking about foods, not individual nutrients when we think about chronic diseases. And and I guess third, and, and lastly, and this is you know, I think still very controversial, but is that calories, you know, are, are maybe not the right target for reducing obesity. Counting calories uh, is maybe a failure. We'll get to the research behind all three of those beliefs. But first, the one that, if you've paid attention to nutrition for a while, might feel the weirdest. Fat is good? You know, in the 1980s, the best evidence available, which was from really limited types uh, uh, and numbers of studies, suggested that that fat was bad for heart disease and maybe increased risk of obesity. And it was really based on a lot of early theory. You know, fat has more calories per gram than carbohydrates or protein. And so people said, well, if there's more, you know, calories per gram and and it may be linked to heart disease based on a few studies, you know, this seems like something we, we should reduce. The evidence was not convincing, but it was the best available. There have been so many studies since then. I thought I can't really point to any single study, but there have been multiple long-term observational studies where now instead of looking hmm. across countries as was done in the 80s, we're looking at individual people and their habits over decades. There have been major randomized trials, the Women's Health Initiative randomized trial in the United States, you know, 50,000 women randomized to a low-fat diet for 10 years and had no benefits. They had no effects on heart disease, no effects on on diabetes, no effects on cancer. Mm. Um, Many, many mechanistic studies showing benefits of healthy fats, um, unsaturated fats, and, and especially foods 
rich in, in fats like plant oils and nuts and fish. So I think just the, the weight of the evidence, and, and, it's, it, and it takes a while to translate that science to policy. And so the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee in, in 2015, just a few years ago, it was one sentence buried in the, in the piece, but it said that you know, there's no reason any longer to have an upper limit on fat intake. But that hasn't reached the public. Um, it hasn't reached industry. So you still see you know, food products advertised for being low fat. The real challenge to me, I think, is while people mostly, scientists mostly now, accept that fat intake is not relevant for uh, cardiovascular disease or cancers, um, still people are really worried about obesity. And so, and, and counting calories is is the new fetish. And so the fetish of the 80s and 90s was lowering fat. Now the fetish is just counting calories. And if you count calories, that pretty quickly turns into shorthand for fat because, again, per, per gram weight, higher-fat foods have more calories. And so you see all these low-fat muffins and low-fat desserts and you know low-fat everything. And now the, the argument is calories, not fat per se, but it leads you to the same place. Um, and so I still think that, that you know, the biggest probably single problem in the food supply is refined starch and sugar. Um, and healthy fats from healthy foods is a really great way to reduce starch and sugar. Hmm. Um, so let's talk about another of those three beliefs that you said you have about diet um, when you kind of look at the science. And that belief is connected to a recent study by, um, among others, Dr. David Ludwig at Harvard. And it really challenged this idea of a calorie is a calorie is a calorie. Uh, so do you want to talk about like what it showed and uh, how it made you think differently? Yeah, so uh, you know, do, uh, Dr. Ludwig did a study, you know, where he took uh, people, had them lose weight about ten percent of their body weight in a very controlled fashion. And many previous studies have shown when people lose about ten or fifteen percent of their body weight, their metabolism goes down. The body fights back, um, and so people get cold. Their energy goes down. They're actually burning less energy, and they gain weight. And he had previously published a study that was uh, sh showed that you know over a month, if you tried different diets at, in that setting over a month, that you know high fat, low carbohydrate diets didn't have that effect on reducing the amount of calorie you burn. It was really low fat diets that did that. And so now he has extended that with a twenty week study, where he fed people diets and showed that. What you eat, independent of the calories, actually changes your metabolic expenditure, the, the calories you burn. So just think about that for a second. I mean, it really blows you know, out of the water, this idea that all calories are the same, that the type of food you eat, independent of the calories, you know, changes the energy you burn. And then we also have to remember that you know, when, you, when we eat foods and calories are burned, they're not just burned by our bodies, they're burned by our bodies and by our gut bacteria. So we're feeding ourselves mm -hmm and our gut bacteria. And there's work going on by Rachel Carmody at Harvard and others suggesting that, you know, if you eat refined starch and sugar, for example, it all gets digested really quickly in the stomach and small intestine. Our bodies get all the calories. If you eat, you know, minimally processed, less refined foods like fruits or nuts or true minimally processed whole grains or beans, then a lot of those calories get, get to the bacteria um, and actually are absorbed because we don't digest them that quickly. And the bacteria are burning the calories. And so just a few examples. There's other examples of foods with the same calories having different effects on the brain's reward centers, on you know, liver fat synthesis. So you know, we are really beautiful and complex organisms. And calorie for calorie, the kinds of foods we eat in the long run will have a very different effect on our long-term 
risk of, of weight gain. And again, this is very controversial. There's many scientists. Um, most national policies are still really focused on calories. That one, one example mm-hmm. is is the national uh, law now that all chain restaurants, you know, have to post the calories. People are going to notice this when they go into restaurants that the calories are posted now on the on the menu boards and. On the one hand, it seems like a good idea. You know, we should probably know the calories in the foods. But on the other hand, it, it's, it gives the message that you can judge the healthfulness of foods and, and what, how much risk of weight gain you, you will have just based on the calories. And I think that's fundamentally flawed. It's much better to have 1,000 calories of healthy food than to have 600 calories of unhealthy food. And, and we, we should define what healthy and unhealthy mean. But I think, you know, this focus on calories, that's really global. There's a global fetish now about calorie counting because of the global obesity epidemic. I think it's a mistake. I think it's really interesting to contemplate the notion that perhaps in 10 years, we will not think of calories as the thing that makes you gain or lose weight. And, you know, when you talk about the study, part of what the researchers said coming out of it was maybe certain kinds of foods turn your body into really great calorie storage machines. And other kinds of food, they don't they don't store the calories just aren't stored that well. They're there. They're just not stored that well, like as fat on your body. Yeah. And so that, you know, that study was really focusing on insulin and the role that insulin has to play in, in storage of, of energy and, and foods that right. give rise to bursts of insulin, like, you know, potatoes and white bread and crackers and soda and candy, um, which are all actually pretty similar. You know, uh, I, I try to explain to people that like most breakfast cereals or white bread, think of it as a, a bag of Skittles, right? And if you want to have it, that's fine, but it's essentially metabolically the same. So if you have... Do you, really, you think of uh, white bread is similar to Skittles? 100%. I mean, it has... Really? The, the studies that, that are done to look at the glycemic response to foods, the standards that can be used, you use a standard, you test you know, different foods, their glycemic response, how, how fast they, they, they cause uh, blood sugar and insulin to rise, you test them against standards. The two standards that are used are you know, 100 grams of table sugar or 100 grams of white bread. They're identical. So so you can pick either one. Um, and so, you know, it's really not that different um, if you have a refined grain or, or a sugar. And, and so that that's the insulin, you know, role of insulin. But as I've mentioned, there's also the way our microbiomes deal with foods. There's also our brain response. There's also our liver response. And so it's not just about insulin, uh, but but insulin plays an important role. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller talking to Dariush Mozafarian, a cardiologist. He's dean of the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy at Tufts. Um, We were talking about fat before, and you actually worked recently on a study about uh, the linkage between dairy fat and type 2 diabetes. And I, I honestly think if you said to a lot of people, you know, what are the good fats? They would say olive oil, nuts, um, and if you think, what are the bad fats? They'd be like cheese and butter and sour cream. Uh, so do you want to talk a little bit about what you found in terms of uh, dairy fat? Yeah, you know, dairy is one of the most interesting categories in the food supply. It's about 10 or 15% of calories, which is a lot. And it's all of the guidelines about dairy have been from kind of these single nutrient reductionist approaches where you say, well, you know, we need to get a certain amount of calcium, we need to get a certain amount of vitamin D, so we should eat dairy products, and we want to avoid calories and avoid saturated fat, so we should have non-fat dairy products. Very, very simplistic. I mean, that's basically unchanged for the last 40 years. 
But what we're finding, what the science is showing really interesting and exciting is first, you know, milk is not cheese, is not yogurt. Yogurt and cheese are fermented. Cheese is fermented in particular ways. Yogurt has probiotics. Um, There are special um, uh, uh, nutrients in in cheese because of the fermentation that aren't present in milk. And and, and so first, Mm. we shouldn't be talking about dairy. We should separately think about milk and yogurt and cheese as really three different foods. And then secondly, you know, what's really interesting is in in our work that we've been now doing for several years, we've published several individual papers, and now we put together all of the world's evidence from 16 large studies around the world to look at, um, when you look at biomarkers in the blood, there, there are certain fatty acids in the blood you can measure that really just come from dairy fat. The human body doesn't make them, they don't really come from other major sources, and People, when we looked at combine all these studies from around the world, over 60,000 people with blood measurements of these fatty acids that come from dairy fat, consistently people who had higher levels of these fatty acids, which again are are markers of eating dairy fat, had lower risk of diabetes. Um, And so, Hmm. you know, very, very consistent. So really this notion again that even, you know, dairy fat is bad, um, I think really has to be questioned. Hmm. Do do you... Feel, when you look at the numbers and you think about obesity and type 2 diabetes, do you see it continuing to go up before things get better? Or have we have we plateaued? Have things turned around? Unfortunately, things are going to get worse before they get better. And, okay. and you know, every country in the world uh, has rising obesity. So, And that right there lets us know that this calorie focus has not worked, right? Empirically, for 30 years, we've been telling people to count calories and reduce their calories. And there's not a single nation in the world that has a reduction um, in obesity. So we really need to change direction and think about food quality. Um, We need a lot more research. I mean, one thing that I've uh, uh, started to talk about is that the National Institutes of Health, which is an incredible engine in our country for science discovery, doesn't have a National Institute of Nutrition. You know, there's a National Institute Mm. focused on the heart. There's a National Institute focused on cancer. There's a National Institute focused on alcohol. And there's, you know, many major health conditions are covered. But nutrition, the biggest driver of health of them all, is is kind of scattered across the, the NIH. So I think we need to think about a new National Institute of Nutrition, which will let us perform, you know, major, major new studies to un- understand these these questions. Hmm. How good do you think the government is at picking up on the changes in nutrition? Because when you think about the impact on, you know, people who get food stamps, millions of people, people who eat school lunches, millions of people, uh, the government and and our food intersect every day all the time and the government has a lot of sort of power in some ways to control what many people uh, children is a you know a big population eat well you know i think one of the most exciting things in the last year even have, has been the federal government's recognition here in this country that food is medicine that we really need to address food if we're going to get rising uh, healthcare costs under control. And other countries have started to realize this. So, you know, things are changing so quickly. You know, Mexico passed a sugar sweet beverage tax and a junk food tax. Chile has put these 
black box warning labels on every product in their food system. Many other countries are passing taxes or labeling systems. And the U.S. has been a little bit behind, but really rapidly catching up. Um, the, the new farm bill actually um, has some new um, features in it, which are really positive. So it greatly expanded a, an incentive program to subsidize fruits and vegetables. Um, and it also, for the first time, um, included up to $25 million for new projects, new pilot projects to test using fruit and vegetable prescriptions in healthcare so that in Medicare and Medicaid, you could go to your doctor and, and get a prescription and, and your insurance will partially pay for your fruit or vegetable. And, and these are pilot projects, but if they work, Really? Yeah. They can prescribe like, we want you to take a, we want you to have a lot more fruits and vegetables. It goes on the RX pad and your insurance company helps you pay for those fruits and vegetables. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, these are, it's $25 million. That's, that's a drop in the bucket compared to our national healthcare spending. But if it works, you know, and it gets extended to Medicare and Medicaid, it could be incredibly powerful. We, we've done research um, showing that giving fruit and vegetable prescriptions in Medicare and Medicaid um, and, and having insurance help pay for it is just as cost effective as blood pressure screening control or cholesterol lowering drugs. So wow. we have to really focus on this, that one in five dollars in our entire economy is being spent on healthcare right now. And it's only going up. It's only accelerating. And that's completely unsustainable. And nutrition is missing from the healthcare system. I mean, just think about that. The number one cause of poor health in this country, you know, bad nutrition is missing from healthcare. And so I think these food as medicine approaches are, are going to happen in the next few years. They have to happen because otherwise the government, private businesses, the economy is all going to crash from rising healthcare costs. So a final question here. Um, it's pretty tricky for an average consumer, as we were talking about at the beginning, to hear about new research. And then also they may not be able to assess, like, how good is this research? Was it funded by the tomato growers or the almond growers or whoever? Um, so what's the advice that you would give to, like, ordinary people who are out there every day just trying to make good choices? One of the craziest things to me is that we're we're leaving all these choices up to the consumer. We're putting them in this wild west of products, um, different stores, different information, and saying, you figure it out. Um, you know, we don't do that. If you just stop and think about it, we don't do that for anything else in our economy. We don't, we don't create toy stores and tell parents that, you know, most of the toys, toys in the store are, are bad for your children. They're going to hurt your children. And you have to figure it out. Um, look online, you know, read the studies about the toy safety, shop around the, the outsides of the toy store. Don't shop in the aisles in the middle. Read, <laughs> right. read the labels. You know, we know most of the toys are bad for you or, or cars. You go to buy a car and, you know, the guy at the, the car dealership says, yeah, a lot, most of the cars here are, are bad and don't meet really minimum standards of, of, of safety. But we're not going to tell you and you have to go figure it out and you can't really right. predict and it's going to change in two years. <laughs> so it's really strange that food, one of the most important parts of our economy and our lives has been sort of left to free will and, and personal choice. And I think that has to change. We have to recognize that food more importantly than many of these other things, has to meet sort of minimum standards for safety, which includes not just not having bacteria in it, but not making us sick. And so I think that, to me, is where I want to go. Um, in the meantime, you know, to get to your question, until that happens, and I think it has to happen, um, in the meantime, I think it's it's really hard. And so I think for consumers, you know, the kind of biggest messages I would give is there's no one-word fix. So you can't just be vegan or vegetarian or paleo or low carb. You can't pick one or organic or local. You can't pick one word 
and solve the equation. It's not, it's a little bit more complicated than that. And after that, you know, a couple of golden rules, as I said, eat foods that give rise to life, eat nuts and beans and fruits um, and seeds, minimally processed whole grains as, as much as you can, avoid refined starch and sugar, cook, you know, cook as much as you can, assemble if you can't cook, right? That right there, um, you know, leads to a lot of health. And then, you know, enjoy your food with with friends and family. Don't try to eat on the run and and not pay attention to what you eat. Do your best. Um, for low-income Americans, for single parents or dual-working parents, those things are hard. And so we really need government to step in and fix this. And this isn't just a moral issue. I mean, this is a, an economic issue. This is a profound economic challenge to our country in terms of health care. So I think mm. government should be really excited about fixing this because it's win-win. We can sell food, industry can be profitable, consumers can be healthier, healthcare costs can go down, and we can use those savings to do all the other things that everyone's always arguing about. Dr. Dariush Mozafarian is Dean of the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy at Tufts University. He's a cardiologist. Dariush, thanks so much for being here. Kara, thank you so much for having me on the program. If you want to know more about how the food industry affects our calorie consumption, we did a segment on what science tells us about artificial sweeteners and how Americans fell in love with them. You can find that segment and other segments about food on our website, innovationhub.org.